Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, how was it for you then? Prime Minister Boris Johnson went to the trouble of calling the nation's press into his £2.6 million briefing room yesterday afternoon uh, to tell them absolutely nothing. The square root of nothing, nothing times a million, and it was nothing to write home about, quite frankly. After leaking most of the details about travel systems operated like traffic lights, vaccine passports for big sporting events, but absolutely no chance of them being used for pubs and restaurants, he confirmed basically nothing. He gave away nothing, and he couldn't even bring himself to explain his plans. All in all, it was a pretty laugh performance from the clown prince of Downing Street. I don't say that uh, with any glee. I was a great supporter of Boris Johnson, as everybody here knows. He got us uh, out of the European Union, he got Brexit done, and for that we gave him an awful lot of praise. We understood it was difficult for him at the beginning of the pandemic last year. We understood uh, that it was awful for him to have to go through his own personal trauma when he was admitted to hospital and he ended up in the ICU, very close to death. We had a lot of sympathy for him, but now is the time, surely, to show some kind of leadership. What I saw yesterday was more proof that this government is very much still in the grip of the sage maniacs who wouldn't risk as much as a bacon sandwich without handing out a health warning first. More evidence indeed that my take on Boris last week was correct. He simply does not possess the intestinal fortitude to get us out of this mess. And never have we needed someone who can do that now more than ever. I'll be asking Lord Morden, who worked with Boris when he was Mayor of London, what's happened to him? 0344 499 1000. We're also going to be joined by travel guru Simon Calder, who's going to try and make sense of what the government's transport policies actually are. Today, travel companies are dismayed by a lack of information of what is happening and when. Plus, we'll ask one of the Tory passport rebels where they go from here. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. You know what to do. Tell us what you're thinking, uh, and so we can tell everybody else. And on the basis of what I've been seeing on social media in the past 24 hours, the new normal isn't something that anybody wants. 0344 499 1000. Uh, we'll also be talking about today's children and how mollycoddled they are by their parents because uh, TV shepherdess Amanda Owen says they're all useless and they need to learn to get a bit more independent. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say we're kicking off the show this morning with Conservative peer Lord Moylan, uh, a man who worked closely with Boris Johnson back in the days when he was Mayor of London, uh, and a man who knows a thing about a thing or two about the Prime Minister. Lord Moylan, very good morning to you. Good morning. How are you, Mike? Very well indeed. Great to see you. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. I mean, the first question really is, were you as be- uh, uh, dismayed um, and sort of besmirched as I was yesterday watching that briefing where literally we expected this big barnstorming performance for Boris Johnson to come out and tell us that everything was great and everything was moving forward? And instead, he made one of the shortest speeches I think he's ever made and then handed it over to uh, old Chris Whitty and his next slide projection. Yeah, well, he's being pulled in two directions. And I think that's why it's really important that people who do understand what normal life is 
keep making a noise and start pulling him back in the right direction because I think that's really where his instincts lie. Um, we've got to have a clear idea of what normal life is and aim to get back to it. And, and what the, um, what, what the uh, sage people, and I'm not complaining now about medical people um, and doctors, I'm complaining about the statisticians yes. and the modelers who wouldn't know how to cure a boil on your bum. I mean, mm. they're, they're all mathematicians. Um, I'm complaining about them. And what they're doing is they're stoking up fears for the future and saying we must be ready to handle those things um, in advance. And there's a degree in which we to, to which we should be, but not to the extent of not getting back to normal. And you just imagine the huge database that has to exist of your uh, medical details, all kept in digital form on your phone. And these are huge intrusions into personal liberty that people in this country are going to find, many of them are going to find very, very strange. So what I'm saying is if, if you've got to go, don't download the app. And if you're going to go to a venue where they demand that you show the app, tell them politely that you're taking your custom somewhere else. Yes. And what do you say, Lord Moylan, to these people who are kind of um, against our point of view, if you like? And I'm not saying that you and I share every single point of view, but on this particular vaccine passport front, what do you say to these people who say, what's wrong with you? You know, we have passports to travel abroad. We have all sorts of digital um, footprints all over the place. We've got a DVLA driving license. We have insurance. You know, I, I try to convince them that this is not the same thing. No, well, it, I don't think it is the same thing. And, and I don't mind having a, a vaccine passport for, for international travel. I'd rather it was a paper thing. I've had a paper document that says I've had my tetanus jab and my yellow fever. And many of us have that because we've traveled abroad. I mean, mine's out of date now because I've been abroad <laughs> for so long. Well, we but, you know, well nobody um, has. You know, but 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 you don't mind doing something like that, which you have to show if, if there is um, a reason to do so. And I do think we might have to live with restrictions on international travel for a while until the rest of the world and the places where we want to go catch up with us in terms of vaccination. But if vaccination is a success and if it means something, it means that a very large number of people cannot get ill with the virus, even if they ingest it in some way. Mm. They cannot get ill with the virus. So if you've been vaccinated, you really shouldn't need to worry too much any more than you worry about getting the common cold or getting the flu from people. And that's what I mean by normalization. We need to normalize the virus as well as normalize our own lives. We need to treat it as being something that does happen and people will get, but in numbers that can be coped with and which can be part of a rolling and improved vaccination program, just as we do flu at the moment. And if I may say so, there's a lot of progress being made in that. We, we, are, the, the, we, we are running the biggest clinical trials in the world in this country, and we're discovering new drugs. We, dexamethasone was, is old hat now, but there have been other anti-inflammatory drugs that show that they help if people get, um, get the virus and that they help with the treatment. This is a medical problem to be, found, to be handled with medical solutions. But we've handed it all over, the running of it's been all handed over to a bunch of mathematical geeks who mm. wouldn't know what they were doing medically. They're just running models, many of which have flawed assumptions in them. Well, this is it. I mean, I keep hearing different figures from them as well, because first it was Chris Whitty saying 30,000 extra people could die in the summer. That seems to have gone down to 16,000. Nobody's explained why that's happened. Uh, also, of course, many of these people that you described are, in fact, behavioural scientists, which is basically, yeah. for me, shorthand for, for con men, because these are people yeah. who supposedly predict people's behaviour, and when they get it wrong, uh, they don't seem to have any kind of uh, answer for that. Uh, there are too many behavioural scientists around, and I really don't think we need them at all. 
Uh, in fact, I'm coming to the point of view that Sage is now so worried about some public inquiry. I think it's a great, great mistake, great danger to the country when uh, last year people were demanding for political reasons public inquiry and basically demanding heads, you know, people hanging from nooses um, uh, uh, over the handling of, of this virus, which was unprecedented, which nobody could actually get right. Mm. There's no right answer even now to what was the right date to lock down and so on, when you take all the factors together. Um, and so what it's done, I think, is it's made SAGE and it's and, and many, much of the, that sort of world um, far too nervous. And I think we're coming to the point where actually we should just say SAGE isn't helping anymore. No. We're saying do without medical advice, but the government doesn't need SAGE to have medical advice. It can internalise medical advice. It can have, it's got a chief medical officer after all. It doesn't need this bunch of people, these randoms wandering around from one television station to another giving us contradictory opinions right. all the time. Yeah. And it does need to focus on normality, what that means, and getting back to it cautiously. I don't mind a bit of caution. I don't mind if we're a bit slower than we need to be. But we need to have the goal clearly in sight. It doesn't include vaccine passports or massive test and trace with people being told to isolate and no compensation. Yeah. Exactly right. And why is it as well that many of these sage individuals go on television when they do and radio when they do and then claim to be speaking in, quotes a personal capacity, in which case, why are they even on? I don't even know why people get them on. I mean, I wouldn't have one on my show talking absolute and utter cobblers, pretending that there's some kind of data that they're following when there clearly isn't. And it's all being made up in a lab somewhere. Uh, but also it struck me yesterday, uh, basically, that in the end, somebody was really um, pulling, as you say, in two different directions with Boris because he couldn't seemingly uh, confirm anything. He couldn't seemingly commit to anything. And I was very interested, and I know you've retweeted this piece from The Spectator this morning from Fraser Nelson about how he's talking about um, how carefully he said what was going to happen on Monday but wouldn't really go beyond that and then said that there would be no reason to provide certification uh, of a COVID status report in a pub garden. He did not say inside a pub. Yeah, well, look, it's right that the Prime Minister should listen to everybody before jumping to conclusions and making his mind up. And I think Boris will see us through this and bring us out on the other side. And I think that's where his instincts are. So I think we're at a stage at the moment, clearly from yesterday's interview, where Boris hasn't quite made his mind up what he's doing. Mm. And, and I think he, but I, I, we need to keep the pressure up and ensure that he listens to all voices so that he comes down on the right side of this. Otherwise... If you if you live on facts, you can see a way forward. If you live on fears, which is what we're being told, oh, there might be a third wave, there might be a fourth wave, this might happen, that might happen. If you live on fears, you will never, ever get back to normal because you can never dispel or disprove the fears. Right. There's always going to be a reason down the road for not doing the right thing. Well, this is the trouble. I mean, I heard somebody this morning talking about what could happen, you know, if the virus came back in a stronger way, much stronger way than before. And you're kind of going, well, that's fine. But that's literally pie in the sky. There's no evidence for it. You know, we appear to be in no, a but very... You can, you can mitigate it. I mean, personally, rather than have vaccine passports, if you're really worried about a third wave or a fourth wave um, overwhelming the NHS, I'd say, OK, reopen the Nightingale hospitals employ a whole load of extra nurses mm. and doctors, have them standing around doing nothing, so you're ready for it. And at least then, you'd have externalised and made clear what the cost of, of, of mitigating these fears was. Mm. And you might say, well, it'd be extremely stupid to have a load of doctors 
standing round and nurses standing round doing nothing. But that's the whole point. The whole point of saying you have to run the country according to NHS capacity is that it, is that, that is not a sensible thing to do. Mm. It well, isn't a sensible thing to do. Well, presumably- but I'd rather see that done than have everybody, you know, living in this state of constant fear um, and, 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 and that, that, that is really implied by vaccine passports. The other thing is I don't think people will use them. Well, As I don't I think said. people people will. I mean, it will be similar to what happened in the test and trace scenario back in the summer of last year, where certain restaurants and certain bars were very kind of deliberate and uh, and were very draconian about who they let in and what details they got. Well, from. not one I found. Um, well, most of the places I went to were not like that at all, because no. you know my my friends who run restaurants and run bars said Look, it's not our business to find out who's here if the government asks us to take a name we take a name it's nothing for us uh, as to whether that name's real or whether the phone number's right you know they're not they're not the police they're not going to do that are they yeah well there's a small number of sage epidemiologists you see who have for the whole of the last year been pinning everything not on vaccines but on test and trace because they th- they thought they saw that working in south korea and places like mm. that with totally different cultures operating in a different, um, also at a different stage uh, in the pandemic. But test and trace only makes sense if it's accompanied by test, trace and isolate. And they never actually have explained how it is in a free country like ours, you are going to get mass compliance with isolation unless you have coercive measures. Mm. So unless you actually have the police and kind, it's no good PHE ringing you up and saying, are you at home, darling? Yes. Um, you know, that, I mean, that, that, that might or might not work. I no. was in, the, and if you don't answer the phone, I was in the bath, I was in the shower, right. whatever. Who knows? You know, to make it work, you have to have coercive measures, which they do have in places like Hong Kong and mm. some Asian places. Measures which if you explain them to the British people now, they'd say, well, we're not doing that. We're not putting up with all that. In Hong Kong, and I'm not criticising them. This is their choice as to how to manage the pandemic. It's their country. It's not my country. In Hong Kong, you get a call. It could be in the middle of the night. They come round in a specially sanitised bus. They take you and your family off to a, a government-run hotel, and they keep you isolated for 10 days. Yeah. And it can happen to anybody. And it can happen at no notice at all. Keep you isolated. I think it's 10 days. might be two weeks. Mm. Because you're on a trace system which says you've been in proximity to something which they regard as as a risk and they've kept numbers very low but that's the price you have to pay that's the only way to make test trace and isolate work properly and i hope in this country that's for the birds well i think it is but also one of the criticisms of that system in this country as well is that many people were not compensated if they were supposed to be self-isolating and therefore that, that that is true of course as well you have no incentive to isolate other than public spiritedness and at the same time, many people do, who were asked to isolate were being told that the jobs they were doing were essential jobs. Yes, you know, exactly right. So what, what is it? Am I a central worker? What am I doing? Am I meant to give up my wage? But that's the point, you know. Not just poor people, not but, just people on low wages. So I guess the question, Lord Moylan, is how do we wrench Boris Johnson, the man that you knew when he was mayor of London, to be a very sort of go-getty kind of, um, you know, entrepreneurial style mayor, uh, who made a lot of things work in London, who got a lot of things done and who was re-elected, despite the fact that the large proportion of voters in London probably would not vote Conservative as a general rule. How do we get that guy back? Because he's gone somewhere. Well, I don't think that's fair. I think we, I think we're getting back. There are, there are two, two answers to that. First is, 
and keep telling him. So he hears the voices from people saying, this isn't the answer. We've got, to, we've got to be braver and bolder about this. And we can afford to be brave and bold because of your success with the vaccination program, which has made us a world leader. So we need to build on that. And he will understand that message. The cynical answer to that, of course, is that actually an awful lot of this could come down to Keir Starmer. Mm. Because in the end, um, if the Labour Party decides to vote for whatever the government is proposing, uh, when it comes to propose it, and we don't know what they're proposing in detail, we don't know when they're going to propose it, but if it comes to a vote in the House of Commons and the Labour Party votes for it, then it will pass. And if the Labour Party doesn't vote for it, um, it is reasonable to think at the moment that it could fail. Mm. And Boris is perfectly aware of that. He can count. I mean, all politicians know how to count. Mm. And, and he can count, and he knows, uh, you know, that's part of it. So a lot of this is going to come down. A lot of this pressure is really on Keir Starmer. I personally think, speaking entirely personally, that Boris would be quite thrilled if Keir Starmer came out against it. Yes, I think he probably would. The trouble is, Keir Starmer hasn't seen a fence he doesn't want to sit on. And, I mean, every time he gets asked to make a decision... Well, about I, think anything... the party, I think his health secretary has been doing the rounds this morning, taking a rather firmer line than the leader did a couple of days ago. Mm. So maybe he's he's also moving in a certain direction. Yes, well, that would be good. But when you see headlines like this, uh, where we've apparently spent £2.8 billion for UK's lateral flow COVID test from a Chinese businessman based in California, uh, who apparently originally is from Wuhan. You do wonder what on earth is going on. Why are we spending all this money on testing kits that are probably not going to work at all and, are, and, and, and as we know already, uh, are pretty unreliable? Well, I don't know how reliable they are. It worries me, however, I'm not commenting on that. They may be the most perfect and func- perfectly functioning test kits and if we need them, it doesn't really matter, in my view, where we get them from. Um, and uh, But what, what does worry me is that there are certain institutions where testing is now becoming um, the norm in a way that I think is going to be very, very difficult to lift in the future. Mm. Um, I worry about children in school being uh, tested repeatedly. Uh, people who go into schools, adults who go into schools, are required to submit to tests as well. Um, I mean, legitimately going into school, like school governors yeah. and people like that. Um, and, um, and and that worries me. And it would worry me deeply if employers started requiring that. Yes. I'm told I, some, I think, some already have started to do it, but it is, yeah. it's a very slippery slope, as you say. Yeah, it's, it's a very slippery slope to uh, a two-tier society in which so much information and data is kept about you by people who simply can't be trusted to keep it secure and that includes the government Mm. as we know because no database is secure however much they um, seek to make it so there are people who are adept at uh, at getting into it Um, and and I think it's also mildly humiliating it's you know there has to be an adult life for adults and that means a degree of Uh, independence and autonomy about what you do and with vaccination you know for the first time um, in a year we start to know that we can do as individuals what we want to do without greatly endangering others Mm. so the argument for limiting our individual freedoms which was that we endanger others in doing so and it's irresponsible and wrong that argument falls away 
the more effective the vaccination program is and the better the treatments become for people who develop COVID. So we need to hold that in mind. The whole mindset that we have to submit to these controls falls away as on the evidence when vaccination um, and better treatments uh, become available. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And just finally, Lord Moylan, this uh, uh, vaccine passport that they speak of is, as um, Fraser Nelson has said, not simply um, a vaccine passport. It's effectively a bio-identity card. It's loaded yeah, with your personal health data, which they can put any number of things on. Yeah, that, that's it, basically. That's it, it is your entire medical history. Mm. Um, and um, if, it's, if they're using the NHS app, of course, if they're inventing a new app, then it won't be ready until, you know, uh, for another couple of years and it never worked. Mm. So that's a bit more. You sure it won't be world class like the last one? Um, it probably won't be world class. <laughs> no. Um, uh, what we've done many world class things in this country over the COVID with the vaccination. Uh, we are the lead world leaders in genomic sequencing. So we're the best at identifying mutant variants as they arise. And we've also run these massive um, trials, uh, random trials that have produced validations of some drugs that help in treatment and, and also proven that some other drugs that people hoped would work haven't worked. So in some areas, Britain, which has a fantastic medical science reputation and skills, in some ways, Britain has led the world, but we're not the best at developing apps yet, maybe. No, we're As certainly not. Booms, but not yet. No, quite. Lord Moylan, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Very much common sense coming from Lord Moylan, Conservative peer, um, a former um, partner with Boris Johnson, if you like, in the uh, running of London when he was mayor of London, when he was a very much different individual to the one we saw yesterday, sort of humming and hawing, avoiding the answers, not really properly addressing questions that were being put to him about vaccine passports. I don't think he does know yet what he wants to do. I don't think he has made up his mind. And that worries me intensely, because if you're considering doing something like vaccine passports, bio-identity cards, effectively, for the entire nation, I think you're barking up the very, very wrong tree, the wrongest tree you can find in the forest. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Henry Smith, Conservative MP for Crawley, to find out what he makes of it all. Henry, very good morning to you. Hello, good morning. Very, very nice to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, a rather disappointing performance, I thought, yesterday from the Prime Minister. It wasn't really one thing nor the other. It didn't really give us any great clue as to what was going to be the future. I don't mean, I'm not even sure really whether he personally um, is in favour or not of vaccine passports. What's your uh, understanding? Well, one of the things I was pleased about were that the indicative dates um, do seem to be being stuck to of the 12th of April yeah. uh, next Monday and also the 17th of May, which for me is particularly important because that means uh, the ability to open up uh, international travel. Very important uh, for my local community. I have Gatwick Airport in my constituency. Uh, so that that is important. Um, so I was pleased that that timetable hasn't uh, slipped. Uh, but you're right; it wasn't it wasn't sort of heavy on uh, detail. And um, certainly, I think the issue of vaccine passports has been um, the cans being kicked down the street a bit uh, further still. Um, I don't think vaccine passports are a good idea. I think there are civil liberties implications uh, to them. Uh, also, I think they're discriminatory as well. Uh, and I think. 
think, you know, our way out of this is the successful vaccination programme. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And yet we have embarked on that with great success and we are very well on the way to vaccinating probably nearly three quarters of the population within the next month or so. And I find it quite baffling that having heard what the government said back end of last year about how good that was going to make our situation, that we don't appear to be any better off. Well, you know, we were told uh, several months ago that the vaccine programme was our salvation. Yeah. I think that is uh, correct. Um, and so I do um, get concerned at some equivocation um, in terms of uh, opening up. I understand uh, the level of uh, caution, uh, but I do think we need to be optimistic. We can't keep our economy closed down uh, for very much uh, longer. Uh, we're an island trading nation. Um, it's the impact of lockdown on people's mental health, uh, not to mention the economic health of the country, I think is significant and other health conditions that have been uh, neglected. Um, as a result, we need to get back to as normal as possible. The vaccine is the road to that. And there's more good news as well for younger people who, of course, haven't yet been offered the vaccine. The single jab Johnson & Johnson mm. um, uh, is a prospect which can get younger people uh, vaccinated uh, as well. They have been a little bit left out, I think, um, of this so far. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, and I think the government uh, should be optimistic as well. Yes, I think that's right. But equally, we need to be very careful, I think, that if Boris Johnson is in two minds, um, we need to make him aware that there is only one mind he should be in, and that is to reopen the economy uh, and not make people force themselves into situations they don't really want to be in. Because, you know, the great piece of the Spectator this morning, I've been mentioning it already by Fraser Nelson, in which he describes this new COVID passport literally as a sort of a bio-identity card, and that's precisely what it would be. And I don't think that is what anybody wants. I think, I'm not sure pe I think people are under under the misapprehension that if they're being asked to prove that they've had a vaccine to go into a pub it's like somebody's asking them a question as opposed to they're actually having to have a digital card to produce to show somebody well i i would be very nervous about the prospect of health data being shared um i think that that is something uh, which uh, is a line of civil liberties that uh, would be unacceptably crossed uh, yeah. if that were the case. Uh, but I was pleased that I, there seems to be some rowing back from the suggestion that I think we heard towards the end of last week uh, that you'll need a, a, va a vaccine passport or certificate to, to go to the pub or to certain shops. seems to me that they are now talking about larger venues. I think the FA Cup was, uh, was mentioned. So... Um, I do think it's important uh, that we all stand up and we say that, understand that these are unprecedented times, these are massive challenges that the country is facing, but the way uh, to recover it isn't to damage our ancient civil liberties. Uh, the way to do that is to continue with these successful vac vaccination programmes so that we can get back to normal and get our economy growing again. Well, exactly, because at what point, I mean, it's all, it's all very well saying, all right, we can go see a football match as long as everybody's had uh, either a vaccination or has got antibodies uh, and all the rest of it. But at what point does that stop? Because once you start on that road, surely you don't end it until somebody says, oh, now we can do it without doing that because there's hardly any COVID around. And I've heard various different scientists saying, well, zero COVID would be the only time you could do that. You know, I don't really want to live in a world where I can't go to a concert and I can't go to a football match because I refuse to, to, to prove something to someone that I never used to have to prove. Well, let's be clear about this. Uh, we won't be in a world in the foreseeable future, at least, that is COVID free. COVID is a coronavirus, uh, just like uh, flu is a coronavirus. Mm. 
uh, which we are going to have to live with. Now, it will likely mutate, and as it mutates, it will probably become uh, less vir vir virulent um, as uh, as it, it develops. Uh, and we will probably have to have a vaccination program similar to the flu vaccination program uh, that's existed uh, for many years uh, going into uh, the foreseeable future. That's the way to uh, deal with COVID-19. It isn't uh, to erode um, our individual freedoms and civil liberties. And, you know, I think government generally in a democracy is well-meaning, but once you hand uh, significant power, uh, it's very difficult mm. to get that back. There's always an excuse that government could come out with as to why they need to hold on to that. And that's why I voted against the extension of the Coronavirus Act. It was emergency legislation that was necessary at the time to deal with an unprecedented pandemic crisis. But as we recover from that, it's important that we dismantle uh, that really quite draconian legislation, necessary at the time, but not uh, going forward into right. the future. Otherwise, it is a slippery slope. Well, exactly right. And what does that mean then for uh, the, 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 the sort of planning of this vaccine passport situation, Henry? I mean, is the government able to just bring it in without having to put it before Parliament? Or are you going to have an opportunity to vote against it? Well, the Prime Minister said yesterday uh, that he would be surprised if there wasn't a parliamentary vote um, on that issue. But let's be under no illusions as to the sweeping powers that the Coronavirus Act gives to the executive. Uh, and um, therefore, whilst a parliamentary vote, I think, would probably be unavoidable on such uh, a controversial issue, um, I don't think legally uh, a vote in parliament is required because the coronavirus act and various other public health acts that have existed for many years uh, actually gives the government the executive quite a lot um of of say on these things uh, so it's important uh, that we're talking about uh, these issues and i thank talk radio for keeping this discussion very much alive and this debate very much going uh, and you know i encourage uh your listeners to contact their local members of parliament to express their views on the issue because only by doing that uh, can we ensure that the right decision i think is taken hmm. we spoke to lord moylan just before you uh, henry uh, who was very sure that uh, he thinks it's time now to take less notice of some of the sage advisors that have been advising boris johnson and the government for the best part of the last year not the scientists uh, he was very specific about that but these kind of mathematicians and the modelers and the people who come up with behavioral science and all of that. I mean, it does seem to me that there's far too much power vested in those people. Well, there's a saying in government that advisers advise and ministers decide, and that is the maxim by which we should uh, be uh, governed uh, by. Um, absolutely, um, there needs to be a range of advisers uh, giving their opinions um, and indeed, you know, crunching the numbers. Uh, but there is more to our society, there is more to our economy uh, than uh, simply mitigating against a virus. And now we are really getting it under control with the successful vaccination uh, program rollout. Um, what um, one expert might just focus on maybe ignores uh, the wider impacts of people losing their jobs, um, the uh, health impacts that increased poverty uh, creates, uh, depression uh, through uh, people perhaps being out of work um, or um, other health conditions, cancers, heart disease, uh, 
diabetes not being properly uh, treated uh, because of the focus on COVID. There needs to be a broader uh, picture of our society and our, our economy taken. And I think if you just focus on one aspect, important those, uh, those, those aspects are, then I think you get a skewed picture. And I do think we need uh, greater balance and a, a, and a broader risk assessment as a country now going forward. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Henry, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Henry Smith, Conservative MP for Crawley. Uh, and that, as he says, very much involves the area of Gatwick Airport. So he's very keen uh, to get the travel business back up and running. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let's just go to Simon Cooler, travel editor at The Independent, travel guru, the man who knows everything there is to know about travel. Uh, as of yesterday's briefing, however, Simon, I'm not sure if you know any more than I do. No, I actually know slightly less. But I do know, <laughs> Mike, that um, when you said, uh, yeah, um, one of the shortest speeches known to man, there are a lot of people thinking, yes, we could do with more of that from Mike Graham. But no. <laughs> well, um, lots of people uh, would no. say that, Simon, but obviously you would not be one of them, would you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, here I am living the dream in beautiful East Croydon, which is about as exciting as I can get. I'll yes. tell you what, if you stand around near a station in a high-vis jacket, oh, and there's my friend, um, <laughs> you get an enormous number of people coming up and asking you for advice. Yes. So there we are. Now, anyway, what are the good, what are the good people, what sort of advice do the good people of Croydon want to have from you today? Well, well they mostly want to know that. I don't know if they're the good people of Croydon, although there are many good people here. They're mostly people who not don't know Croydon that well and want to know where the station entrance is. Yeah. So I hope I've been polite and helpful. And well, I hope I can be the same with you, but you never know. Well, this is the thing. And let's hope that the, unlike the train service between Salisbury and I think it was Bristol yesterday, which wasn't running due to a shortage of staff, nothing it's all to do with the fact that it was a bank holiday weekend let's hope the trains are running uh, into london and they've got enough staff to uh, to, to make them uh, go well I, I i think they probably have although um uh, most most trains these days running very very empty and that's a serious concern for mm. a, a lot of people not least um you and me mike might not realize it but um I, as I may have mentioned before, you have. one million pounds an hour. That's a shocking. That's, a, that's possibly one of the yeah. most shocking statistics that you have imparted on this show. One million pounds an hour. That's extraordinary. Well, even in the middle of the night, where the trains running, we're still paying a million yeah. pounds an hour. But back to Boris. Yes. Yes. What did he say? He, well, he basically just said, um, "Well, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm going to kick this can down the road. Right. Let's just remember what the context is. Of course, the vaccine program has been amazingly successful, and a lot of people are thinking." Great. Right. Can we get back to normal now? Well, do you know what and, I'm going to start doing? I'm, here's what I'm going to start doing. I'm apologies for interrupting you, Simon. I'm going to put a caveat now on everyone who says it's been remarkably successful. Because, yes, it has been remarkably successful in one way, uh, which is getting lots of people vaccinated. But it's been remarkably unsuccessful in another way, which is getting us out of this bleeding lockdown. Uh, OK, yeah, fair enough. 
Uh, yes. Okay. Well, anyway, given that we, we, we're in this lockdown, how long are we going to stay here? And we thought up until five o'clock yesterday that it would be six weeks because the government had said these are our tests all to do with you know, the, the, the vaccine numbers and, and uh, infection rates and so on, everything going in the right direction. So I was thinking, hey, great. Okay. We're going to get a lot more certainty. Then I'll be able to tell Mike tomorrow exactly what we could do. But instead, my head was in my hands. Yes. The entire travel industry was. Uh, had its head in its hands, and as did millions of people who are desperate to see loved ones. I mean, forget you and me wanting to go on a holiday, lovely though that would mm. be. It's the people who haven't been out of touch with their friends and family for so long, haven't seen their partners for a year. So um, the travel industry say they're rather disappointed, which means they are absolutely furious. Yes. They think that the, the can has just been kicked down the road. They've been kicked in the teeth. They've got no idea what they can do to plan because even with six weeks remaining, of course, these companies have to get the planes and the pilots and the security mm. people and the catering staff, everybody organized. And they thought, right, well, we'll understand what we're going to be doing and then we can get on with that. Now they've been told, oh, yeah, we might tell you next week. We might tell you next month. You know, um, good luck and uh, uh, keep, keep not flying anywhere uh, if you wouldn't mind. And we'll let you know if we change our mind on that. I mean, do you really think that Boris Johnson will at some point announce, right, off you go, um, you know, get your uh, get your shorts on and run to the airport. You can get on a plane. You know, I was once at uh, Newark Airport, if you might, you might remember this, uh, yeah. a few years ago when there was a big power outage in northeast America because of some kind of problem at Niagara Falls. And I got to, uh, to Newark Airport to fly back to Scotland on Continental Airways. And the whole airport was out of power, completely out of power. Um, and so when they finally got it up and running again, they only allowed international flights. They basically said, right, off you go. Your, your plane's that way. We ran through security. We ran down to the plane. We got on the plane, arrived in Glasgow. Everything was fine. But, I mean, it's a bit like that, isn't it? You kind of go, well, ready, steady, go. Fire the starting gun and everybody can go to Mallorca tomorrow. Uh, well, yes, and th there is a lot of demand for going to Mallorca tomorrow, and that, that's what the government, that's what the travel companies are sort of, when they say they're worried about that, they're also secretly craving a surge in demand because then they can put their prices up. I'm quite right, too. Mm. Uh, you have to get used to the idea you'd be paying 20% more than you did in 2019 anyway this summer, I reckon. But, of course, the summer really begins on the 1st of May for the travel industry. That's when they would want to be organising all their, um, you know, all, all, all the usual uh, charter flights yeah. would be starting that day. Everybody would be uh, sailing off and um, met some airlines are already doing that. Ryanair say, yeah, you want to go from, here we are, Newquay to Faro on May Day. And that's going to be 20 quid for you. Wow. So lots of people tempted to do that. But of course, it might be a cheap flight. But we've got the £5,000 fine to think about uh, when you go. So, yeah. Well, you've also got the testing uh, cost as well, because we still ah. haven't, we still haven't, I had a guy on yesterday, right, uh, who had to come back from Spain because they'd been there for three months and all the other flights that they tried to come back on were cancelled. He he came back, but the, but the tests that he's due to get, having arrived back, are going to cost him something like 360 quid for two. And he's got to get another yep. two done um, further down the road. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, it, it's completely unfeasible for uh, people who are going on holiday. It's mm. tolerable. If you've been lucky enough to spend the first three months of 2021 in Spain, then you probably think, oh, I don't like this, but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll tolerate it. Yeah. But people who are just going over there for a week, yeah, and they actually, the boss of um, EasyJet this morning, mm. Johan Lundgren, was saying, yeah, it's ridiculous. People are going to have to pay more for each test than they have for their ticket 
to fly exactly. to and from Spain. It's it, yeah, it, it's just and and I mean he didn't. I mean Boris didn't give any clue about how much cheaper the test would become. I mean, is it is it even down to him? Well, no. I mean, it's all done through private suppliers, and they're charging typically hundred pounds, maybe one hundred and fifty right. for a PCR test. Mm. Interestingly, I got an email overnight from SpiceJet, which, if you find yourself in India, I would absolutely strongly recommend okay. Top Airline. And they said, "Hey, um, since you're a SpiceJet customer, we will give you a test for two hundred ninety-nine rupees." And I thought, rupee. That's only three quid. Excellent. The trouble is, I have to go to Mumbai Airport to get it, which obviously I <laughs> and, can't do at the moment. Well, and again, I'm, I'm afraid the five thousand pound fine would also apply again, wouldn't yes. it? But, but I mean, yeah. this is the crazy thing because uh, there's talk, of course, of May the seventeenth still being the date at which people are allowed to travel because Boris did say there's no reason for me to. to there's no there's no proof of any reason to stop the the, the rollout of the dates that have already been given out. But the question will be, presumably, where can you actually go? Yeah, um, and which places will have you and what's going to be on the green list? Well, I did actually ask the bosses of um, Heathrow and Virgin. Uh, and Virgin. Yes. Oh, we just lost you there for a second. Tell, oh, uh, tell us, where, where where's the green list going to be? And um, they basically said the United States, um, the UAE, they think. And they wouldn't be drawn much further on that. But mm. I would chuck in Israel, obviously, because yes. they've got a fantastic vaccine program. Uh, plucky Gibraltar, where they've—I I think they've—they're onto vaccinating the, the domestic pets now. They've vaccinated <laughs> so many people. Yes. Um, and Malta, probably because it's a nice little island. They're getting through the vaccination program. That will probably be there. Yeah. But you might have noticed I haven't mentioned Portugal. They're the probably top candidate for the kind of big tourism countries, and crucially, of course, Spain, uh, France, Italy, Greece, Croatia, and all all destinations to Turkey. We want to know about those. Yes, I think Spain have kind of slightly kiboshed themselves, though, with that ruling on wearing a mask on the beach, which I don't think too many people fancy. Uh, you say that, absolutely, they, they said that, um, and it's kicked off an enormous storm. So you might think that there's a bit of tension here between um, London and Edinburgh and Belfast and Cardiff, and, uh, and, yeah, I mean, they're independent nations. Um, but in Spain, you've got all these regional governments and they, they well, it's, it's always kicking off there. So government in Madrid says, right, everybody on the on the beach with your mask on. Uh, the Balearics said, well, Balearics to that. Um, you're not going to have to do that when you <laughs> Very come here. And so done. did the... Uh, so did the Canaries. So, yes. Um, no, quite. Uh, well, I, I mean, this is this is the thing. But also, um, it's not clear, is it? Because what I mean, I don't know what you know about the American arrival situation is uh, is. But I'm I'm under the impression because, as you know, I'm I've got a great interest in going to New York to see my mother. Um, I'm yeah. under the impression that I would have to do a test when I arrived, probably in addition to whatever test I would have to do before I left here. Yeah, but, but you would tolerate that, of course, to go and see your lovely mum. And uh, people who are visiting loved ones certainly would do. And it probably, you know, it would probably be quite straightforward. At the moment, of course, there's, there's, uh, there's a total ban on you. Well, not just you personally, but, but anybody <laughs> arriving the from time. the UK. Um, and, and so you have to kind of get past that obstacle. But, but uh, honestly, the, the bosses of the airlines and Heathrow Airport were saying that because the UK and the US are on the same page in terms of large numbers of vaccinations. Um, America's rates aren't yet coming down, um, but they're kind of going to start heading in the right direction. And it's so important for so many people and also for the economies. Mm. And we've got to have some sort of benefit from 
uh, getting ahead in the vaccine race. I mean, as, as they said, it's ridiculous. If Britain can't be first in to the US, um, then why have we bothered with all this, uh, all this stuff? But it's the same question everybody's asking about the vaccine passports at home. I mean, I don't think anyone objects to having to show some form of, uh, uh, of vaccination uh, certificate to fly to a foreign country if that's what they require. Because if you don't want to do it, you just don't have to go there. Equally, yeah. um, people are upset about having to do it at home because this is not the place where they expect to have to do it. Yes, and very, very interestingly, in the um, roadmap review uh, which I hope um, hope you you read every single clause of. I tried to uh, get through it. Um, it they, passed they, me by. I see the roadmap review. Perhaps you could uh, summarise well, it for us. Well, well, basically, in terms of vaccine passports, yes, we think they they're really useful, but we're not going to apply them to uh, to to essential shops, and we're not going to apply them to public transport because we don't want to disadvantage people. Um, so, if you're a young person, you're not going to get jabbed for months. At least you can catch a bus. Or you can go to your local supermarket. There we are. That's a, that, that'll do, won't it? Well, I mean, this is the thing. If those places are safe, why is it everywhere else? Ah, well, it's not a question of being safe. It's a question of not wishing to exclude people. But, yes. um, oh, it's a tricky old business, isn't it? It really is. Meanwhile, we're not that good at excluding people coming from other countries because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, old bugbears come back to haunt us again, Simon. We saw uh, there's yeah. loads of people coming in, apparently looking for Big Ben, some of them. Well, yes, you say that. Now... Um, I, I am lucky enough to live in, in London. I am only here on holiday in um, East Croydon. Yes, um, careful. And, and so I see lots of people all the time, and I don't see anybody who looks like an ordinary tourist. The people who are coming in may well be on tourist visas, but they're actually coming to see family, friends who are living here because they want to catch up with them, and um, uh, they're, they're actually allowed to do that. But it is extremely annoying. Yes, if... if, if um, uh, you read the headlines, uh, 8,000 tourists a day coming in. Mm. I mean, the thing is, they can't actually stay at hotels legally. Um, they're not going to find um, uh, the, the great restaurants of the UK are opening up to them. Um, you know, the best they can hope for is a takeaway cup of tea. So uh, Although it's that not may, a great that, place to go on holiday. That may change next week, of course, Simon, when people can oh, come be, and, yeah. uh, and sit around and have dinner outside, albeit yeah. outside a restaurant. But there are a lot of restaurants in London that I know of uh, which are putting up some pretty fancy outdoor uh, rigmaroles so that we won't be feeling the cold uh, or indeed yes. feeling like we're even outside. Hey, exactly, yes. They're, they're doing very, very good, uh, very good job of um, uh, taking the concept of outdoors to extremes yes. um, or rather... Uh, the, the opposite, if, if you see what I mean. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, be... I'm, I'm all for it. And, and, and so as far as you're aware, um, the advice to people, because this is what people will want to know probably, uh, is still probably best not to book anything, isn't it? Ah, well, that you say that, and that's exactly what the government said, and that's why you could hear this collective groan from the travel industry so not only are we not going to tell you when you go abroad we're also going to say oh you don't want to be booking a holiday yet but of course you can perfectly happily book a holiday if you book a proper package holiday through a proper um travel agent then you can just check right if i buy this now if it doesn't happen do i, I get all my money back mm. and the answer is yes or no it almost certainly be yes in which case you can go ahead and uh, 
you know, you'll either get the holiday or you'll get your money back. The trouble is, of course, you might get some really onerous and expensive testing rules as well. Well, that's the other um, thing, which... right? And, 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 and the testing at the moment, you have to do very, very close to the point of departure, don't you? So that it's supposedly valid. But the other thing about that, though, Simon, is that people who work will have to take time off or book time off. And if it's a big organisation, yeah. you know, that's not so easy to do. Because if you book the time off and then you end up not being able to go, by and large, you'll probably still have to take the time. Yeah, and, and that's why people are saying, OK, so you're going to be giving us all these um, uh, lateral flow tests, which take half an hour and clearly they're really cheap and you can afford to give them out to everybody. Mm. Why can't we use that to test for travel as opposed to the so-called gold standard PCR one, which takes a day and a night to process and uh, costs you the wrong side of 100 quid? Well, I think the problem for that is, is, is cheap ones from China don't work very well. And I mean, they do something like 10 percent or possibly 25 percent false positives. Yeah, right. Now, I thought now, you know more about this than I do. I thought the problem was false negatives. But if you get a false negative, well, no, you get false those. positives as well. Yeah, that is. Yeah, the, that's the other problem, because yeah. if you get a false positive, you then have to actually isolate yourself. Is that the tram going by? Uh, it's actually the skateboarder going by. <laughs> um, I, I uh, here we are. He's just um, just skated down down here. There he goes. Um, yeah, it wasn't actually me on my skateboard. Ah, okay. Um, well, but, it's a very, yeah. very um, e eco-friendly way to get around, Simon. I, I suggest you, it, you know. E exactly, yes. Yes, very, good. Very, so, I mean, yeah. Boris basically said an awful lot of uh, sort of things yesterday without saying very much. But what he did say quite a lot of was we will be, you know, giving you information on that sort of in the coming days. So are <laughs> we expecting there to be another announcement ah. soon or what? Right, we're going to get the report from the Global Travel Task Force, oh, yes. Mark 2. I mean, I've read the Global Travel Task Force, Mark 1, and uh, not a great deal of what they said in that report in November has actually happened, but we can always <laughs> hope. And it's basically just going to say, yep, you're going to have traffic lights, uh, green, amber, and red, and here's how we're going to vaguely decide. And you're going to say to me, Mike, um, so which countries are green, which countries are amber, or which countries are red? And I'm going to say, I haven't got a flipping clue. Exactly right. Because um, they, they certainly won't be publishing that. So Also, the trouble uncertainty. with this traffic light system is it calls to mind the one they use in supermarkets for the uh, fat content, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does, actually. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but you're exactly right. And um, uh, that's, I, I will now have to give that my deepest um, yes, so we're uh, looking consideration. For, so we're basically looking for destinations that are low fat, in other words. Uh, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. I think I think you're right, um, and you'll get a little label on your ticket to show you what sort you're going to. That's really? a very good idea. I think that's I shall great. enjoy that. Okay, feel yes. free to use that uh, at another time, Simon. Thank oh, you very much Thank indeed. Thank you very much, Simon Calder, the man who knows everything there is to know about travel, which at the moment isn't very much, but that's not his fault. Uh, at the Independent, of course, big travel guru for us here. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, let's talk to Calvin Robinson, Conservative commentator, of course, because a man uh, like Calvin knows a thing or two about the BBC, knows a thing or two about why things are going rather wrong at the BBC. The latest story coming out today uh, is that the BBC's young executives think older people uh, are the wrong audience to go after and they should be going after a younger audience because older people, they think, only want to watch gardening and tanks. Now, I'm not sure where they get this from, but uh, let's ask Calvin what he makes of it all. Calvin, very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. It's very telling, this, isn't it? Isn't I've it? been saying for a while now that the BBC have been chasing a younger audience and ignoring the elderly people that do watch the BBC. And this is just evidence of that, really. Well, it really is, because funnily enough, one of the few shows now which goes out uh, as a one episode only, so you can't actually binge watch it, is Line of Duty, which has been going out sort of on, for the last three Sunday nights, which has not been as universally sort of applauded as it, as it used to be, because it's become, as you might expect with Jed Mercurio, incredibly woke. They actually managed to introduce um, a couple of names from real life the week before last and Jimmy Savile's name suddenly popped up with reference to how he knew lots of very highly paid and very highly decorated police officers and you're thinking well why are you bringing him into it? Well indeed it's funny for the BBC to bring him up isn't it? After well they, it is, uh, it is rather surprising but they're probably yeah. dead scared of ed- editing it out right for what would be the, 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 the conglomerations afterwards. Well, exactly. But the point is that they keep getting woker and woker and chasing this social justice warrior audience that doesn't exist. We know that young people watch Netflix and YouTube and, and talk radio, of course, and elderly people are still watching the BBC, but they're not being catered for. And when they show shows that the elderly people like, uh, like that happened this week, they bleep out or censor what is now inappropriate comedy. The word puff was censored out this week. Yeah. The word puff. That's offensive now. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, that doesn't surprise me, I suppose. But I mean, I, well, the thing that really surprised me was when they put out an, uh, an episode uh, of uh, Faulty Towers, where which included a rather, I'm not going to use the word, but a rather what you might call pejorative word about a Spaniard. Uh, when uh, the guy comes in with the, gnome, the laughing gnome and puts it down and, and poor old Manuel can't understand what he's talking about and he just disparagingly says something to him. And I'm thinking, this was going out prime time, BBC One. And I thought, some, has somebody done this as a joke? Surely not. Well, they don't understand humour because we're laughing at Basil Fawlty. We're not laughing at his interpretation of the crowds throughout right. these episodes. Yeah. Uh, people just don't understand the target of the joke anymore. Right. It's just, if it's mentioning something slightly uh, that could cause offence to someone, it must be censored out and uh, abolished. We right. have no sense of humour anymore, no irony, no satire. It's None of that's allowed at the no. BBC. No. Well, I mean, it was hilarious when uh, the Nish Kumar's show was cancelled, um, not because it was too left-wing, but because it just wasn't very funny. I mean, and also, I think with having, having, having got rid of Donald Trump in America, they didn't have anything to laugh about anymore. Well, that's it, isn't it? Are the, all these comedians that have been making, making fun of Donald Trump for the last, what, four years, are they going to suddenly start making fun of Joe Biden? I don't think so, because that's not their line of comedy. They're not actually laughing upwards at power. What they're doing is laughing at the, who the perceived majority think are inappropriate or yes. wrong or bad people. And it's a shame, really, because comedy didn't used to be like that. Well, that's right. Also, these guys who say, oh, the trouble with old people is just like shows about gardening. Well, lots of people like shows about gardening. Gardening, and I'm looking at your lovely background there, Calvin, while we in you know, a very open sort of plan look at, into the garden. You know, people love gardening in this country. It's a very English thing to do. People rather like spending time in their gardens, no matter how small they are. So to disparage that and to make out that people who are interested in gardening are somehow old hat. I mean, you know, tell it to Monty Don. This is what the BBC should be doing. The BBC's remit means that they can cover content that no commercial outlet can cover. They should be making documentaries about gardening and interesting educational stuff that, you know, Channel 4 and ITV just won't cover because they've got to chase ad revenue, which makes sense. But if the BBC is not going to do something different, if they're going to compete constantly with the commercial outlets, then why are we funding them with a, with a TV tax, essentially? Mm. We should just let them operate in the free market if that's what they want to do. Well, I see that Charlie Hickson from The Fast Show has come out today in The Times and said the BBC have got to stop tying themselves in knots, basically, trying to work out precisely what it is that they should be doing. They should just do what they're good at, shouldn't they? And they should stop spending ludicrous amounts of money. Uh, I mean, 
mean, I saw a story the other day about this thing called BBC Studios, which is a separate entity from the BBC, which actually makes programmes and makes a series and then sells them to Amazon. And you're going, well, what are they doing that for? Well, they've forgotten what they're good at. That's the problem. And they're splashing out money left, right and centre. They, they're spending £100 million a year on diversity and inclusion, whatever that means, right. at the same time as asking the government for an extra £125 million taxpayers' money because they say they don't, they don't have enough funds. Mm. Well, stop wasting money on, you know, millionaires like Gary Lineker, for example. Well, I mean, it beggars belief that they get so much money, billions and billions of, of pounds, in fact. Well, I think you've just lost your uh, beautiful background there for a second. <laughs> Steady. Well, that was, as soon as you mentioned Gary Lineker, your, your laptop <laughs> fell over. Gust of wind. You know, um, you maybe get a bit of stronger laptop. But here's the thing, you know, um, incredibly, they collect billions and billions of pounds and yet they still can't make any money. Indeed. And they want to chase our money. And like we said before, you know, the BBC made a deal with the government that they wouldn't charge the elderly generation because they've paid in enough over the years and they went back on their word. And now they're charging old people for the privilege of watching content they've already paid for. And it's outrageous. It's kind of immoral, to be honest with you. And they're filling up the magistrates' courts with women and old people, and that's not appropriate. It's not okay. Let's get rid of the TV time. Yeah, so absolutely. Although it looks very, market. does it not look very much though as though they're going to be keeping that for at least another sort of six or seven years now? Unfortunately, our government have kind of bottled it. You know, the prime minister was on on our side. He was talking quite. Um, fervently about demolishing the BBC and or the TV tax, but he has backtracked and U-turned as he, as he tends to do these days and doesn't seem to be on board anymore. I've no idea why. Uh, that's for other people to decide, but it seems like we need to continue fighting. The defund the BBC campaign is big. It's a grassroots campaign. Lots of people are on board uh, from all generations saying they've had enough with the TV tax and they want to do away with it. So hopefully the government will pay attention, but we need to be louder. Yes, I think so. Well, the first thing we need to do, though, is to stop them doing this mad vaccine passport scenario, which we're all fighting against at the moment, because Boris doesn't seem entirely sure what he's up to and whether he wants to do it or not. But I'll tell you what I do want to uh, just touch upon before we let you go, Calvin, is story... Uh, in the papers today about how schools apparently, according to the NASUWT, one of the teaching unions, must decolonise the curriculum in, across all subjects, including maths and science, because, of course, oh. we must teach children um, about black people being slaves, being victims of colonisation and having a heritage only based in pain. Mike, it's bonkers. First of all, the, the curriculum has never been colonised, so we can't decolonise it. But this suggestion that maths and science in particular need decolonizing. Right. These are, you know, we operate in empirical data in these lessons. These are fact-based. They're not emotive. And this whole idea of, you know, it comes from all of this uh, lived experiences and I'm telling my truth and all of this nonsense. We need to get away from it. It's yeah. all rhetoric that means nothing. Let's get back to facts, data, evidence, knowledge. Education should be about knowledge. But I want to address Nasut, the union that you just mentioned, because where have these unions been when a teacher's life is in threat mm. um, at Bately Grammar, yeah. um, you know, for teaching an RE lesson, not breaking any laws. Um, he, him and his family are now in hiding under police protection. Where mm. have the unions been? They've been silent, mm. but now they want to get political again, like they've been all summer. It's disgusting. Yeah, it really is. And also, these are the same people who are insisting on children wearing masks in classrooms, which is clearly not good for the kids doing nothing for uh, their morale, doing absolutely nothing at all for COVID safety either. Because, you know, quite frankly, all the kids that keep getting tested in school, hardly any of them, uh, there's, there's so so few positive tests, nobody's even talking about it. Let's stop testing healthy people for one. Yeah. But these unions have been combating the government all the way through this pandemic, every single step, whatever the government's decided, the unions have decided against it. So when the government said we're closing schools, unions said keep them open. When the government said we're keeping schools open, the, the, the union said close schools. 
Uh, when the government said we're not going to introduce masks, the union said introduce masks. It's absolutely ridiculous. They're playing politics when it should be protecting teachers, protecting schools and protecting pupils. And they're not mm. doing any of that. And I'm a sorry, teacher's life is in threat. And, and I'm sorry if, if they don't like the ethnicity of Archimedes and Pythagoras, but I'm afraid, you know, they are who they are. I mean, you can't just suddenly reinvent those theorems and go, actually, uh, they weren't invented by Pythagoras and, and Archimedes. They were invented somewhere else. This identity politics rubbish is so divisive and toxic. It's going to harm the younger generation mm. if we teach them that you can only learn from people that look like you. How ridiculous is that? I know. Facts are facts and knowledge is knowledge. We can all benefit from it. It doesn't matter where we're from or what we look like. Exactly right. In Cal. fact, math was from the Middle East and from, from the Eastern Asia. It wasn't even invented. It's not even why it's thing. So they need to get over themselves. I, I know. They really do. Calvin, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Calvin Robinson there, conservative commentator on the ridiculous wokery going on in the teaching unions. But it's not actually any use to any teachers because, as uh, Calvin rightly points out, that guy up in uh, Yorkshire is in hiding as a result of the teaching unions not standing up for him, as a result of the teaching unions not telling the school uh, this is what we stand for and this is what we are talking about. Education, education, education. Remember those phrases? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. A lot of love for Elaine on social media and I think uh, uh, quite rightly so because she made a very good point which very, very few people have actually been making over the course of the last year because not everybody is the same. It's fine, as we've said many times on this radio show, uh, for middle-class champagne socialists to sit around, you know, toasting themselves, having tea and toast all day, uh, having hot cross buns, you know, basically working from home, walking from one living room to a one garden, having a lovely time, seeing all their children. Not everybody has a life like that. Not everybody can do that. And not everybody can therefore get a vaccine passport. But let's talk about something slightly different now, because a uh, great story to Times this morning. Uh, honours erased in a decade of disgrace. And this is the honours system, which we occasionally uh, debate here on uh, Talk Radio, because, of course, everybody's got a view on the New Year's honours list, the Queen's birthday honours list. But this is actually about people who have had their honours removed from them. People like Harvey Weinstein, Rolf Harris, people like Chris Hune. You might remember he was the uh, MP who uh, made his wife accept some speeding points for him. Uh, and, of course, they were convicted of the course of justice. Fred Goodwin, the man that uh, was known as Fred the Shred uh, from NatWest, the guy that was Gordon Brown's best mate, who managed to cause one of the biggest financial collapses this world has ever seen. Robert Mugabe, Nassim Hamid, the former uh, uh, boxing champion who was done for leaving the scene of an accident. He had his MBE taken away. The list goes on and on. Lester Piggott, Nicolau Ceausescu, uh, who was, of course, the former Romanian dictator who ended up being shot dead uh, in a sort of coup. So let's talk now uh, to Rupert Bell, Talk Radio's Royal Correspondent and find out why it is that so many uh, uh, honours are being erased uh, now more than ever. Rupert, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Uh, I think it's quite simply, if you fall foul of the law, then you can say goodbye to your um, honours. Yes, but I, but I wonder how true that is, though, because what I haven't seen is whether there's any cases of people who have fallen foul of the law a bit, and therefore not enough, perhaps, to have had it removed. Uh, I, well, that is a difficult one to prove. Mm. But, I mean, as you mentioned, there's some fairly lively names on there yes, who, um, <laughs> who have clearly uh, for made some you know suffered you know jimmy savile i don't think you mentioned him he's another one who yes. had his uh, knighthood stripped from him i mean you can go back even benito mussolini 
had his honours taken from him. And I don't think that was a very difficult one to do, probably. Probably um, not. Well, again, you might ask the question, how on earth did they get them in the first place? I mean, Nicolao Ceausescu, I wasn't aware, uh, apparently had the, the honour. He was an honorary knight at the Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath. I mean, that's extraordinary to me. Well, well and Robert Mugabe. I yeah. mean, at the time you could probably see why he was given an honour and Zimbabwe as it embarked on a new era. But clearly, um, the human rights allegations that were levelled against him made it very difficult for the country to uh, keep the honours in his name. Mm. And I mean, I know from uh, Kim Philby was another one who yeah. had his honours stripped from him. And actually, from my personal point of view, with my father, grandfather having been head of the Secret Service at the time that Philby was at the time, I mean, I don't think he... Uh, was too happy to see, and I know he wasn't, because he used to refer to Phil being some pretty uncompromising uh, <laughs> phrases, yes. uh, and said when he had his. But it's all sorts of people who fall foul of, you know, having, you know, Lester Piggott. I mean, I made a gaffe the other day at Royal Ascot when they announced it, and I was convinced he was a, a sir. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, he was didn't even get a knighthood. Um, and being a racing fan... Um, I think he one of the greatest jockeys of all time, but unfortunately, mm. he did fall foul of the taxman and suffered as a consequence. And I suppose having served time in prison, you've got no choice but to take the honours away. And that's what's happened to those. And, you know, these have been happening over time. It's not a total surprise. These have been talked about. It only just seems to have reared its head now. But mm. this is completely normal practice for people to lose their, their, their title, whatever it be if they uh, are compromised in any way by, by by the courts. Yes, but what I found interesting in this story was that last year's list apparently had more names removed from it uh, than, than only two previous other decades, or two previous other years, I should say, which were both in the 50s, which were presumably as a result of people who had been involved in nefarious activity during the war, you know? Yeah, well, I think... Presumably, um, you know, they've been giving out the you know, there's a lot of criticism about the honours list and the way they're doled out. And there's probably not checks and balances. You look at the people who have a lot of them are high profile people who probably are dancing anyway um, on the edge. In, in some people's cases, you know, you mentioned Fred the Shred. Yeah. I mean, uh, of, of uh, Royal Bank of Scotland fame, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, how did he get one? He got an honorary one. So you can get one if you're doing good work within and promoting Britain, which yes. he did on in terms of his film company. But unfortunately, and quite, well, not fortunately, quite rightly so, he's obviously been yeah. stripped of, of, of any honour that he has. Yes. But I mean, here's the thing, Rupert. We now live in a very different times, mm. don't we? For example, uh, I'm thinking if Gary Lineker was ever given an honour, I'm not even sure if he has one. But imagine, do you remember that day he was caught out in a, uh, in a, in a shop not wearing a mask? I mean, we're now so febrile in this world that you might go, oh, goodness me, now he's been caught not wearing a mask, you know, some kind of COVID deny, better take the OBE off him. You can see that happening. You could see, you know, the way people put pressure on people, if they get an agenda, then it becomes very hard. And it mm. comes back to all the agendas that are sort of, you know, you can't say anything now. So someone's past will dig up something that might be not in quite, a hundred percent. No one's led. Yeah. Well, I, unless you're, I, you name someone who's led a squeaky queen like clean life. No one. Alan made, Brazil. Uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, I'm not entirely convinced about that. Um, uh, well, yes. Listen, you're um, not denying it. Uh, I'm not surely denying, not. No, I, no, clearly I can't deny it. We all know someone somewhere will find something that they will disagree about someone, why they've got yes. an honor because people jealousy, whatever, that's where a lot of it stems from. 
And that comes back mm. to everything that I've been talking about on this station. You know, people will be in, you know, the Meghan camp. They'll be in the, the, the royal family's camp. The royal family try and anyone can get an honour. And that's the thing. You can be nominated yes. if you go to the website. And if someone has done good works, even, you know, like, you know, the, the local lollipop lady, that's always, you know, someone who's committed wholeheartedly to public services mm. is worthy. There clearly when it comes to the royals, some of these prime ministers, ones that they dole out, you, you feel a little uncomfortable with some of them and that, you know, you can get a title for or an honour for being just a friend of a prime minister yes but of I course know, that's one of those things as, as well though rupert isn't it that the queen has to sort of navigate her way through diplomatically because when remember when donald trump was coming to to buckingham palace and the idea was that people were going it's a disgrace he should not be welcomed by the queen who had already had you know the king of saudi arabia there who had already had the president of china who'd already had all sorts of you know despots including robert mugabe to dinner uh, and that's what she does she doesn't really put um, her foot down and say, well, that person can't come. She has no choice. Mm. If the government decide that it's in their interest to have a state visit from whoever we may disagree or agree with, mm. if our government decide, then the Queen has to, to some extent, go along with it. I'm sure she enjoyed every minute of her time with President Trump. Sure she did. And, or, and you know, the Saudi Arabia, that's a controversial one. The Queen has to do this dance of sort of trying to remain mm. apolitical and not she has to do her government's bidding and that's the whole point why she may have had dinner you know if you think how long she, how many state dinners and who she's entertained at buckingham palace i mean it must be a quite an extensive list of yes all of all sorts she must actually i mean thinking about the lockdown year that we've just had mm. she must have probably quite enjoyed it really because one she's in a pretty nice yeah. place she's got hot and cold running servants and she doesn't have to meet anybody well, yes, and <laughs> she can, she can, she can, I think she's probably, well, I think she's a little lonely. Um, it, you know, they're in a royal, very tight bubble at Windsor Castle. I mean, I think now she's, she's been going to Frogmore Cottage to walk around her beloved garden there and enjoy. Yeah, without uh, fear we, of running into Megan. Oh, <laughs> I wonder how long you get round to well, Eric or views on Megan. But anyway, uh, but no, she's, she doesn't have to worry about that. Um, and she's enjoying her garden and enjoying Windsor. But I'm sure she knows that she has a role and a head of state. And when you're 90-odd, you probably don't want to be going out for dinner anyway. Well, exactly. Uh, that often. So I think she's probably able to enjoy it. And Charles, I'm sure, will increasingly maybe take... Because we will try and get back to having state visits, I'm sure, as soon as possible. Mm. Because it's a way of, you know, and particularly with the way the political situation is at the moment, we are trying to do deals with other countries, this will give the royal family is one of our selling points. And people love a good slap up dinner at Buckingham Palace because it, it's quite elegant and um, you feel a bit special if I'm you sure. are the recipient of a state dinner at the Buckingham Palace because they do do it incredibly well. That's what we're good at is putting on things like that. Yeah, absolutely right. And when you are just, I don't know how much you know about the process itself, but when you are nominated, I know that I know a couple of people that have been given, uh, you know, letters after the name, MBEs, OBEs, that kind of thing. And they always get the letter first and, you know, uh, they get asked if they would be willing to accept it, la, 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 and then they get sworn to secrecy and all that. But how much vetting does the palace actually do then of those individuals who have been nominated? Because uh, presumably they have to try and avoid anything embarrassing. I'm sure there's a very lengthy process. But once you get nominated, you hope by the time they get to the palace that the due checks and balances have been in place. Yes. 
uh, and that they are not to, not in extent rubber stamping it. But, you know, with all the people who are nominated that probably say some area will say, right, you've got four or five people you as an organization had nominated. Hopefully we've got four for you. Whatever walk of life it is, mm. we'll give that to you. Sports will be asked to nominate, you know, and, and someone will get a, a knighted or whatever it is. Uh, I get an honor. I mean, it is, um, you know, some, it is a, a great honor. And when you get the letter, you are sworn to secrecy for a long time because mm. you probably know about it in November. Um, and then by the time it comes out for the New Year's honor or the or the Queen's birthday honors list, which will come out in June, um, you know, the people probably already know who's getting on nominated uh, or are going to get a, an honor there. And then it will come out in, in all the in wherever it comes out. But there is a long process before you get through. But hopefully by the time it gets to the royal family and the sort of governing the, the people who administer these things, it's more a rubber stamp operation at that level. But they might be able to say, well, you know, occasionally it might, something might come back, particularly with some high profile uh, award. Yes. And you'd have to worry that they would have to take it away from you as well, because it's a pretty rum list of people you'd be joining if you had been given one. And then they went, sorry, Rupert, we're going to have to take it off you now. <laughs> yeah, and then you're coupled with Benito Mussolini. <laughs> it was good, that, doesn't it? Yes. I don't know it's, it's a rite of passage, but goodness me, there uh -huh. are some... You know, it is a, it is an impressive list of people who have um, well of, of people who've gone horribly wrong. Yes. Um, uh, and, and Mussolini, I just when I read that, I went Mussolini. How? What? Yeah. At what I, point? I, know, yeah, I mean, at I, what I, point in Mussolini's political career was he considered to be a decent cove? Yeah. Well, that that I, <laughs> I mean, someone may know, but um, I think it all went wrong from Abyssinia, if I remember well, rightly. But listen, anyway, you know more about it than I do. One final question. You did say uh, uh, you were wondering why I hadn't mentioned Megan earlier, but yeah. a piece of the sun today saying uh, from my old mucker, um, Andrew Morton, saying that uh, the Queen actually offered Megan the opportunity to be an ambassador for the royal family, living in another part of the world, maybe a Commonwealth country, and she could carry on acting if she wanted to. And according to Andrew Morton, she turned her down. Well, this is the problem. This is what we thought would happen, is that there was talk maybe they could go to Australia or go somewhere and actually have an active role within the Commonwealth and do the kind of work that they felt that they could do, which mm. would be helping uh, underprivileged people go to countries where perhaps their profile would draw attention to their issues. But unfortunately, they decided against that. And the Queen was trying to be as accommodating as possible. But what we seem to be discovering is that uh, the Meghan Harry uh, roadshow had an agenda of its own. And, you know, this is the sad fact. The royal family were not part of their plans. And it appears that uh, Meghan took one look at it once the, the fairy dust settled from the wedding and went, hey, oh, I don't like <laughs> this and I'm not prepared to do the hard yards that is required when you are part of the royal family. It's, it may look glamorous. Honestly, it's not exactly a barrel of laughs when you're just going around opening mm. and you're, it, it, it requires a sense of duty. Yeah. And it's, it's not celebrity in the modern sense of the word. It's a duty and celebrities like to do things on their own right. terms. And unfortunately uh, for Meghan, uh, being part of the royal family became too tough for her. And yes, there may have been issues, but ultimately... Um, she wasn't prepared to do the hard yards that go with being mm. a member of the royal family. And so now instead of helping underprivileged children, she's helping overprivileged Hollywood stars to make even more money. Uh, you said it, not me. Thank you very I much indeed. But I, can't, but I can't disagree. <laughs>
Rupert, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Rupert Bell, Talk Radio's royal correspondent with the word there uh, on a decade of disgrace, apparently. Uh, erased from the honours list must be actually worse than anything that can happen to you because it's better not to have been on it than to have been on it and then taken off it again, isn't it? Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.